right, good morning, Hepzibah. It's good to see everybody today. You're probably wondering why in the world I'm wearing a jacket. There is a search committee back in the right corner. Y'all wave. No, I'm lying. I want to see if y'all would look. No, there's no search committee. It's communion Sunday. Come on. I don't know why I can't dress up without y'all asking who died. So it's kind of gets offensive after a while. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we are this morning. And we are going to be obviously taking the Lord's Supper this morning, it's a great day to do it because that's where we are in this text as Paul, you know, we talked a, a little bit last week about the fact that Paul was going to be giving instructions about things that were happening in the church in Corinth that were causing, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of disorder. The, the church was disunified in ways and there were things that were going on in the church that was causing the church kind of to be somewhat dysfunctional. And it's hard to think that with that kind of a, a, an introduction and discussion on the topic, that somehow the Lord's Supper could be disorderly, that somehow how in the world does something that is meant to be a remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us, how in the world could they mess it up? But, but folks, listen, sometimes we mess up the simplest things, amen? And so this church was no different, and here they are struggling with an issue about the Lord's Supper. I love the way last week began because I told you that Paul was kind of be he was going to be touching some difficult issues. And this week, uh, if you remember last week when we talked about the Apostle Paul, he went into this section. He started to praise this church at Corinth. And if you remember last week, he said, "Listen, I praise you because you're concerned for me. You love me. You encourage me." He's grateful for all that they were able to do for him personally. He said, and also I praise you because you've taken the teachings, so many of the doctrines that you've been given and how we've brought the word of God to you. You have received it and you've accepted it. And I told you that whenever Paul starts praising people, you know what's coming on the back end, right? He's about to come down on the back end and say, but I've got some issues. He's trying to, in a way, lessen the blow a little bit because he's got difficult things that he wants to talk about. And so today he actually starts, it's very interesting, he starts in saying, but I don't praise you in this. And then he's going to get into a discussion on the Lord's Supper. So I want you to think about it with me today. That One of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper is to evaluate. Most times in our spiritual lives, the thing that we never stop and do is really evaluate. Take inventory of where we are spiritually. And one of the reasons the Lord Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, one of the reasons there's only two ordinances in the church. One is baptism, and baptism celebrates the new life that we have in Christ, that we become part of a body of believers. When someone is baptized, it's an outward testimony of what has happened inwardly to them. So we take them and we put them under the water that represents the grave. They've died to sin, they've died to self, and they are brought back to new life in Jesus Christ, forgiven of their sins. They are empowered to stop sinning. They have this transformation that has occurred and God literally took a person who was spiritually dead and raised them from the dead. And what a beautiful image that baptism is. Well, the second ordinance that we have in the church is the Lord's Supper. And it is meant to bring us back to a point of reflection. It ought not shock us because in the Old Testament over and over and over and over, one of the things that God tells the children of Israel is he says, the danger for you is that you'll forget. You'll forget what I've done. You'll forget who I am. And so throughout all of the Old Testament history, it's very interesting because their calendars were set to remember. That's why they had festivals, and that's why they had feasts. And they would gather together, and they set their whole calendar around these moments that were meant to push them back and make them think about things like the Passover. 
to make them think about things of how God provided for them while they were in the wilderness and gave them food and, and, and put shelter over their head. And so literally, they celebrated every year these things so that they could remember God's goodness because when you stop remembering God, I think one of the clearest evidences is in the book of Judges chapter 2. It says that while three generations were faithful to follow God, to honor God, to worship God, to serve God, it says there rose up another generation. And you know what it said simply about them? It says that they didn't know who God was or what God had done for them. Let that sink in a second. The danger is always forgetting. And so how do we evaluate ourselves? Because God says, I want to invite you to this table. I want to invite you to this meal that celebrates the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. It celebrates the fact that Jesus purchased our salvation with his broken body and his shed blood. It reminds us that not only are our sins forgiven, but it reminds us that, listen, we've been made new in Jesus Christ. It reminds us there's a day coming when he's going to see us again, and he's going to come get us, and he's going to take us to heaven. And we're going to talk about all that because it is an evaluation. This moment gives us the chance to come in and to stand before Jesus honest, sincerely. I love what the state of Arizona does when you go into their employment offices you walk into a room and they have you sit down and in front of everybody in that room as they're sitting looking at one wall, it's a huge mirror. And you know what the mirror says? Written on that mirror, it simply says, would you hire this person? They get you into a smaller room and you sit and wait in the smaller room and there's another mirror on the wall that you're facing. And that mirror simply says, are you sure you're ready for a job? Now, that seems simple, and that seems kind of silly in a way, but I want you to think about it. How many people even go into a job and they're not really thinking about it? They haven't taken time to examine themselves. A am I willing to do what it takes to have this job? Do I, want, do I really want to work 40 hours? It may change my schedule. It may change whether or not I can go where I want and when I want and how I want. And think about the wasted time that occurs in the state of Arizona, like every other state with people, that they come in and they want a job, but they haven't stopped long enough to evaluate, do I really want this? Am I willing to do what it takes to have this? Am I the employee that I need to be? And am I willing to do what it takes to accomplish the task that's been set before me? And see, even in something like that, when we don't evaluate the results can be disastrous. The results don't just affect us. It affects everybody that we work with. And in a church like this, the unevaluated life is probably one of the most dangerous things that happens to us as believers. We're so busy, we don't ask the questions that we need to be asking. And that's why Jesus says, you know what, we got to slow down and we got to come together and we got to remember. Let me read these verses to you. And I think you'll see very quickly what went wrong. And then we're going to look at what he tells us to do. And then he's going to give us some warnings. Because you may say, well, you know, how serious a situation is the Lord's Supper. You will be convinced by the time we're done today that it's deadly serious. It may shock you what the scripture actually says and what Paul has to say right here in these verses. Listen to what he says beginning in verse, hold on, there you go, 17, I don't know why I couldn't find it. In verse 17, listen to what it says. 
It says, but in giving this, or actually, yeah, that's it, 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now think about that for a second. This is where he comes back. He said, I praise you in a few verses earlier. Now, in the next paragraph, he comes back and says, listen, I don't praise you. Because the Lord's Supper, what is meant to be good, what is meant to be valuable, what is meant to be holy and, and, and good for the body of Christ, he says, you've taken what was meant to be good, what was meant to be best, and somehow you've made it worse. That's a heck of a statement. And listen to what he says, how that happened, how that occurred. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat, or it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each of one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. What? I mean, you don't see that often in Scripture. What? That's literally what he says about it. And he goes on and says, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, and here it is, many of you are weak, many of you are sick, and a number sleep. Now let me explain to you what that word sleep means. It's not a nap, it's a dirt nap. It's not just I fell asleep for a couple hours. It is the way that it is said of a believer that we don't die, but we what? We sleep and we're resurrected. And listen, he said that believers who have not understood and heeded the warnings of this verse, it says they've become weak, they've become sick, and they've died. That got your attention? It should. Because we want to understand what he is saying here. And he goes on and says, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when he will not come together for judgment, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Well, let me get into this and, and explain to you what was literally happening here. You have to understand the context, the culture, what was happening in the early church. Most of us don't realize that in the Word of God, it's not just the Lord's Supper that is mentioned and talked about, but literally one of the things that was occurring in the early church was that they would gather together. And when the church came together, he wasn't talking about a Sunday morning service like we have today. When the church gathered, where did they gather? 
at home. They gathered in each other's homes and, and people would gather together literally almost every day. And as they gathered together, listen, these were people of different stripes. These were people, some were poor, some were rich. Some were from this side of town. Some were from that side of town. They were people that gathered together. And if you were to ask them about the different opinions they had on theological topics, you know what? Sometimes there would have probably been differences among them in the way that they thought and the way that they maybe even understood certain doctrines. But they gathered together as one body to fellowship, to celebrate. They would pray together. They would read the Word of God together. They would be taught they would give. They would do all the things that we do in here on a Sunday morning, but they would do it in their home. And when you get people together, this is why Baptists, I mean, listen, I believe this is probably why Baptists eat so well. The good book says it. When you gather together, listen, they fellowshiped and they shared a meal together. And you think, how could that go wrong? What could possibly happen in that scenario? These were called, listen, love feasts, agape feasts. That word love, it, when we think about it, we should think about what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. He loved us so much. He laid down his life for us. His concern was not as much for himself as it was for us. He died in our place so that we could be saved. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve, right? And this is the essence of the love of God, this selfless love. And what happened was when these people started to gather together, I'm sure it started the way that it needed to. And after they eat their meal, they would gather for the Lord's Supper. But by the time they got to the Lord's Supper, what Paul is saying is that you've already got a heart issue by the time you get to this table. Because in the meal, you know what was happening? People were getting there earlier, and there was a reason they got there earlier. Because some people were very wealthy, and they told everybody kind of what they were going to do, right? They were the landowners. They didn't necessarily have to work the land. They had people that worked the land. And so then in the mix of that people, you had the people that were actually laboring in the land. You may have even possibly in this day, there would have been those that were even slaves. And so some people were getting there early. And guess what they were doing? They were gorging themselves on the food. By the time everybody else got there, they had had so much of the wine that it literally says they were sitting there in this what was meant to be a fellowship of believers. And by the time everybody even got there, the food was gone and everybody's drunk. Let that sink in a second. He says, there are divisions among you. So when they came together, rather than coming together, they were actually flying apart. They were tearing each other apart, literally. And Paul says, listen, I believe this. Of course he believes it because he knows what the first part of the book was about. Remember, he said the church was divided. Some say, I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. And remember, the church was divided, and Paul was looking at them saying, listen, don't follow us. We're not looking to make a name for ourselves. We want to make much of Jesus. We didn't save you. We didn't baptize you. Jesus saved you. Jesus is Lord of all. He is the one that brings all of us together. So get your attention off all of these things and all of these traditions and all of these thoughts and all of these differences that we may have in, in our thinking or in our doctrine. And he says, let's come together for this feast. It was meant to be a way, when you think about it, that even the less economically you were, the, 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 the more you struggled economically, for many of those people, remember, most of them lived day to day, right? What well, we would say check to check, but even worse than check to check. 
that literally you worked all day to bring home what you needed so your family could survive another day. And think about the blessing that it was because breakfast was always a smaller meal. Lunch was pretty much almost like a little sack lunch you would take with you to go work in the fields. And then they would gather together for this big meal that was meant to be family, was meant to be fellowship. And so by the time this meal even got going, they had eaten so much that the people that probably really needed it, guess what? It wasn't even there anymore. And you can see why Jesus has an issue, right? Jesus had concerns about these love feasts because he said this was meant to break down barriers, not cause barriers. When we come together, shouldn't it be there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female? Shouldn't it be that it doesn't matter where we're from socioeconomically? Our color, our heritage, our background, should any of that make a difference? The Bible says that Christ has made us what? One. The meal was meant to be a blessing to those who didn't have. It was meant to bless them. To those who were struggling, it was meant to bless them. It was a way, it was basically what we would call a potluck dinner. That's the best way to describe it. And I'm sure there were some people that probably couldn't bring very much. There were others that could have brought a lot, in essence, to be able to bless those people. That they would get a good meal. We see it on the mission field all the time. When we come, they feel like they have to feed us. And literally, you know, we sit there and think this is a normal meal. You can see the excitement in the eyes of the people that we go do ministry with around the world. Because for them, that may be the best meal they've had all year long. If it was just them, they'd just have rice. Or the fish that they just caught, but... When the Americans show up, they try to put on this huge feast. And, and it's an amazing thing because you can see where they want to gather and they want to bless. And we're constantly saying, listen, we don't need this much food. You could feed the village what you're feeding us right now. And in essence, guess what? They'll take all that food and that's exactly what they'll do with it. It's meant to be a blessing. It was meant to bring unity to the body of believers. But... Paul steps back and he says, what? You're not concerned for each other? You want to be heard and you never listen? What? You guys come together and there's dissension and there's factions and all of this division? He, he just can't understand how it's come to this thing. And now he says, you're going to come out of this, what's supposed to be a love feast, and take the Lord's Supper, and already your hearts are divided. Already your hearts aren't in the right place, and you take the Lord's Supper, and he's saying you're bringing judgment on yourself. Because you're missing the point of the whole thing. And he gives instructions about the Lord's Supper. He shares the concerns that he has, but then he gives instructions for what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. And you see that he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. So they're modeling what they're doing off of what happened that night during the Feast of Passover. 
It makes sense that they would have a meal before they had the Lord's Supper because on that evening, that's exactly what happened. If you remember the children of Israel, they were celebrating the Passover. The Passover was that moment in their history where God brought them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, out of their imprisonment, out of this place that they had begged God to save them from. And God is going to save his people. And you remember the plagues that occurred. The last plague was going to be the taking of the first child, of everything, animal, human, everything. And if you remember, the Lord told him, when the death angel comes, take a lamb, an unblemished lamb. You can get all the imagery for the, who Christ is, right? Unblemished. And you sacrifice that lamb, and you take the blood, and you put it over the doorpost, and when the angel comes, he will pass over your house because you're under the blood, Right? So you can see why in the New Testament when Jesus is sitting down and they're sharing in this meal together. After the supper, he stops and he wants to make a point. And you know what he's going to pretty much say to them? I'm the Passover lamb. I'm the one that can ultimately free you. Not from Egypt. Not from physical enslavement. Spiritual enslavement. I can forgive your sins. I am the one that if you will come, uh, listen, if you will realize that if you are under the blood of Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. The word of God has always taught without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The wage of sin is what? Death. And that judgment sat on all of us until Jesus Christ came and he said, I will die in their place. And he says, I'm that lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world, right? And so he instituted the Lord's Supper after they took that meal. And they were simply modeling what Jesus had shown them. But the attitudes and the wretchedness of their hearts as they came to this table, the unwillingness to come before the Lord and be holy was shocking to the Apostle Paul. He says, here's what the Lord's Supper is meant to do. It's meant to remind us to look back. As you come to the table today, that's what I want you to hear today. That when we gather for the Lord's Supper, it is meant to be a moment where you and I can look back on what Jesus Christ has done for us. You see, most times when we come to this table, we just think, well, he went to the cross and he died. And we spend about two seconds thinking about that concept. And then we go and take the Lord's Supper. I think he means for us to go deeper. If you notice, he says, I want you to look back because he would raise up the bread and he would say, this is my body. And he would say it was broken for who? What does the text say? This is my body broken for you. For you. Personalize this moment that we remember that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you for your sins. So Joey Wood, he's saying my body was broken for you. If no one else existed, he would have gone to the cross. He died for you. He knew you. He saw you. He died for you. And it's no different, Josh. He, his body was broken for you. For your children. For Christy. Brian, I want you to hear what he means when he says, this is my body. It was broken for Brian Stevens. And then I want you to think of what that entailed. 
Because see, we can go right over that real quick. He died on the cross. Now, when we come to this moment, we ought to be thinking about what it costs to purchase that salvation. Now, when it says his body was broken, don't, don't pass over that and, and forget that that means there were nails that were piercing his hands and his feet that there was a crown of thorns that was pressed into his head. I don't want you to miss that his beard had been plucked from his face, that he had been spit upon, that the God who created us was being mocked and ridiculed, that he was beaten almost to death before he almost went, before he even got to go to the cross, scourged, punched in the face, he endured the most horrific death so that he could say, this is my body, broken for you. And he says, do this, eat this bread, why? So that you can remember, so you can look back and know what it costs. And then he raised the wine and what did he say? This is the blood of the new covenant written in my blood. What was the old covenant? Well, in the Old Testament, it was the what? It was the law. Sure, you can go to heaven. Sure, you can have a relationship with God if you can maintain perfection. Then the law can save you. But you realize that in reality... From the moment that Adam sinned, all of us were born sinners. There is not one person. All throughout the Old Testament scripture, at the end of the Old Testament, all we're left with is, you are condemned by the law. If someone doesn't come save you, you are dead. Eternally. Forever judged in hell. Apart from God. And you are so dead, you can't save yourself. And you know what the new covenant written in his blood is? It's God saying, I will send my son in the form of a human. Fully God, fully man. He will live the life that you and I didn't live, a life of perfection. And he will go to the cross and he will die in our place. And he will shed his blood, his life's blood. so that we can be forgiven. And that new covenant isn't the law. You know what it is? It's grace. Grace, grace. God's grace. That grace that is greater than what? All of our sin. You see, when we say remember, that's what we're remembering. When we come to this table, we slowly take thought of what he did and it's not just looking back but it's recognizing also our current reality reminding us of that current reality our present reality you know what it is that because of what jesus did on the cross our sins are forever forgiven not just the ones that happened long ago not just the ones that we committed today 
but the ones that we will ever commit. If we are in Christ, we are entrusting him with our salvation. When he died, he died once for all so that our sins could be forgiven. And you say, well, how could he die for all of our sins that we hadn't even committed? Listen, none of us were born when he died. Every sin that we ever committed. He paid the price and died in our place before we ever committed one of them. And what, a, what an amazing thing to realize that I'm safe in his hands. What can separate me from the love that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. I am victorious over sin. He didn't just die to forgive you of your sin. You know what the present reality is? You can live a life of holiness. God is shaping you and molding you. He has given you his Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. Do you know what the people in the Old Testament would have done with the thought that God won't dwell in the Holy of Holies? God won't dwell on the mountain where we can't even see him or know him or, 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 or anything. I mean, literally, think about the fear they had going to the holy place, the Holy of Holies. Only the priests, only the high priest could do that. Everybody else had no access to God. And to think that now God in his spirit doesn't dwell in a tabernacle, in a temple. He dwells in the life of a believer. And he says, I will be with you to the end of the age to accomplish in you what I want to do in the world and what I want to do in you until I come again. Do you realize what a blessing that is? That when you look at your life and you think, how can I live a life of godliness? God comes in behind you and says, I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness. My word, my spirit. You have the power that resurrected Jesus from the dead inside of you. He's taken away our shame and our guilt. He's given us a mission. He's equipped us for the mission and promised us he'll be with us all the way through it. Think about your present reality in Jesus. You're not a victim. You are more than conqueror. That's what Christ said. You're victorious. He's won. That's our present reality. And he says that I want you to be reminded that we gather together as believers celebrating those facts. It is meant to remind us that we have communion with each other. We share this story. We share this life. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We were enemies, but now it says that he has brought us together. And not just enemies against each other, but we were enemies even of God. And God says, you're no longer an enemy. You were a friend. You were a child of God. Now all of you come together to this table and celebrate that. And it reminds us to look forward as well. When you think about the need to look forward at our future. Remember, he says that as you take this meal, you are proclaiming the gospel. To the world, they, they watch a church of so many people from so many backgrounds all believing, all professing this faith in Christ that has broken down every barrier. And we come to this table together to remember, to rest in our present reality, to fellowship with each other, and we look forward to the fact that, you know what? He hasn't even finished fulfilling all of his promises yet. Most of which is we get to take this 
as a testimony to the world until Jesus what? Until he returns. Isn't it good news to know that he's returning? Isn't it good news that just as he promised he would save us, he has accomplished that work, and we know that he is going to return one day to come and get his children? I want you to remember that his death has opened eternity to you. In heaven, with him, I want you to remember the words that Jesus gave to you. He said, listen, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And more than that, I don't want you to be worried. I don't want you to be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Why? He says, because I'm going away. And that thought was troubling for them. But he said, don't be troubled because I'm going away to do what? To prepare a place for you. So that where I am, you may be also. And he's coming to get his children again. And until that day, we have work to do, but we don't work alone. We have the body of believers. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And we labor, and we know that we don't labor in vain. And we look forward to the day that he comes again, and we hear those words, well done, right? Is there any greater thing that you'll ever hear in your life than well done? You who have been faithful over little, I will make you faithful over much. There is so much that lies still ahead of us. And he says, this is the Lord's Supper. This is what it is meant to remind us of. And then he gives a warning. He says, but if you come to this table... You have to approach the Lord's Supper respectfully. We have to take it seriously. One of the reasons we don't do it the way you may have traditionally seen where the deacons come and pass out the elements is simply because we notice that most times when people, we do it that way, they just check out. Like you do when I say this is my last point. It's the end of service. Everybody's ready to go home. And we still got to do the Lord's Supper. And they pass it out and everybody just takes it. And then while the pastor's up there speaking, we're kind of looking around. One time, I, I, I'll never forget it. I was the youth pastor. I was, the room used to face this way. If you've been here long enough, you remember that. I was sitting over here near the front. And there was a kid across the aisle that I was watching. He was about 15 years old. And as we took the Lord's Supper, his parents were sitting right there with him. I don't know what was going on. But I look over there, and you know what he'd done? He'd taken the juice, and he put it on his knee. And he and the kid beside him were laughing and giggling. And all of a sudden, I watched him bend down. He put his arms behind his back, and he took it like you would a shot of whiskey or something off of a bar. And he put his head back, and then they just giggled and laughed. Folks, we're supposed to honor him in this moment. There's a reverence that's due him. It is celebratory. It's meant to be something that brings joy to our hearts, but it's also solemn in the way that it reminds us that when we come to this table, it's, it's serious. 
and our life has to be examined. We must approach the Lord's table not just respectfully, but he says we have to examine ourselves sincerely. I've told you a few years ago, a long time ago in the Greek world, they used to make wax sculptures or they used to make stone sculptures. And if you remember, when you make a stone sculpture, it's kind of expensive, right? You got to go get this rock and you got to get it brought in and people would pay top dollar to pay an artist to make a sculpture for them. They'd go put it in their garden or wherever. And you can imagine that if you're trying to chisel away at a sculpture and suddenly you nick the nose off or something, that's costly because you've already proportioned it and everything is set at that point. If you knock the nose off, you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, now what in the world do I do? Do I start over? Because if you start over, you're not going to make any money now. And so what they would do is with all the blemishes that were in the stone, they would just smooth wax into it. Because you can make wax any color you want, and it'll fit right into all the crevices and all the cracks. You can form it, and you can shape it to be whatever you want it to be, and they would just fix the blemishes. And then they would go to the person, and they would offer it to them as if it had been done perfectly. Well, the only problem with that is, in a matter of time, over years, what's going to happen? It's going to bake, it's going to discolor, and you're going to have a sculpture that, with time, it becomes abundantly clear that it wasn't given to you honestly. Folks, that's what sincerity really is the picture of. It's like saying, you know what, here I am. And I'm going to be honest about my cracks and my blemishes and the faults that I have. And rather than trying to cover it, rather than trying to fill those cracks, I need to sit before the Lord and I need to let him examine me. When we talk about examining yourself, what you're really doing is you're saying, Lord Jesus, shine the light into my heart and into my life. All I can do is come to you as I am today, but I don't want to leave the same. I want to come into your presence. I want to remember your promises. I want to remember what it cost to save me and what you paid so that I could be changed and forgiven and free from this sin. And Lord Jesus, all I can do today is come to you honestly and sincerely. No wax. Folks, that's what I, Jesus is asking of you today. To look at your relationships, to look at your attitudes. To come before him, and are you allowing him to do the work in you that he desires to do? It's interesting because in this text he says, you must examine yourself so that you don't come to the table unworthily. Now, let me ask you a question. That's confusing for us as believers because if we think about worthiness, then our first thought is, well, who is worthy? I'm a sinner. I struggle. And I'm saying that, that's me. How in the world can I come to the table if worthy means perfection? That's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is there's a way to come at the table and come to the table in an unworthy manner. None of us are worthy to take this, except that Christ made us worthy. And I want you to remember, here's a little tidbit. 
Remember when they were celebrating the Passover meal and Jesus comes in and everybody had dirty feet. Apparently no one had thought about and there apparently wasn't a servant to do it that we need to wash our feet, which was the custom. And here Jesus, king of the universe, the son of God, he comes in and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. Do you remember that discussion? Man, Simon Peter's like, nope. Jesus, I will not let you wash my feet. Remember Jesus' words to him? He said, listen, you better let me wash your feet. He said, I've already washed you clean. What he was saying was, I mean, think about in that time, that custom, you would go to this house to celebrate this meal, and you would shower, right? I mean, you're clean. Your pits smell clean. You got all the grime off your neck. You don't smell rancid from your day's work of fishing or whatever else, these fishermen. And they have cleaned themselves, but the issue was they had to get from here to here. And so while the rest of them is clean, what is dirty? What's dirty? Their feet, because they wore sandals. And what an image for us because he says, listen, I've already washed you and you are clean, but you better let me wash your feet or you have no part in me. And then Peter's like, okay, well then wash my head and wash everything else. But do you see the imagery that is buried in there? That for us as believers, has he not cleansed us? Have we not been washed in the blood of Christ, right? I mean, that, that imagery of being made pure and made holy and made clean. But there is a reality that we walk in this world and we walk in this flesh, right? And what still happens to us? Our feet get dirty. Our feet stink. And we got to come to Jesus and say, wash me. We got to humble ourselves and put our feet in the hands of the master Say, Jesus, you can only make me clean. That's, that's what we do when we come. We examine ourselves and we recognize the dirtiness of our own feet. And there's Jesus. I mean, it's incredible imagery with a towel and a basin. The last one that should have to wash my dirty, stinking feet. And he does. folks, and examining ourselves, we find freedom. We get honest before God. He shines the light into the dark corners and the dark places, and we get right with him, and we get back to that place where we love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love other people because examining yourselves means that not only are you examining your walk with Christ and are you walking rightly with him so that you can repent and you can speak to him and allow him to cleanse you before you come to this table but it's also about other people, too, because until our relationship is right with others, even on a daily, week-to-week -week basis, remember what he said? Before you bring your gift to the altar, if you have a brother or sister or somebody who has something against you, leave your gift and go and make it right. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? And so if there is a brokenness, not just between you and God, but between you and someone else, you need to get that right in your heart today. And with every intention, you leave this place today and you commit to the Lord. You take this Lord's Supper and you commit. Listen, I am going to make this right. As far as I am concerned, I'm going to do whatever it takes to live peaceably with that person. 
See, some people struggle to take this because they say, I have an issue with my children. I have an issue with a friend. And I've gone and I've tried and, and I've, I've cried with them and I've asked them to forgive me and they won't do it. And, and there's still this issue. I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. Folks, he knows your heart. We overcomplicate this so many times. As a pastor, I'd probably never be able to take it if I'm sure somebody out there has an issue with me that I don't even realize it. And if they do, I have a responsibility to go and to, to do all that I can to bring peace and forgiveness and unity back to that relationship. But all I can do is stand here honestly before God today and say, as far as I'm concerned, I will do all that I can. I will extend grace. I will extend mercy. I will restore this relationship to the best that I can do it. But folks, if you don't examine yourself, and let me, let me add one more thing. This table is for believers in Jesus Christ, baptized believers in Jesus Christ. This is not a meal. That was another reason we quit passing it out was because it was easy when it was passed down. Kids might not be sitting with parents or, or, or we may have guests that, that, you know, we're just passing it out. And many times churches, they don't understand that they need to help people understand that this is for believers in Jesus Christ. If you've never repented of your sins, if you've never believed on Christ for your salvation, if you're not surrendered to him, this meal is not for unbelievers. But before you think to yourself, well, then what am I doing here today? The greatest thing that could happen here today is not what will happen at this table. It's what would happen if one sinner would repent. If one person would give their lives to Christ, we had someone this morning that shared that they had given their lives to Christ, wanted to follow in believers' baptism. Folks, that's what makes heaven rejoice. That which is what makes the angels sing. That's what makes God celebrate. The coin that's been found, the sheep that's been found, the son that was lost and has now come home. Nothing greater will happen in this room today than someone give their life to Jesus Christ saying, I believe that he can save me because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. I'm trusting him to forgive me of my sins. I'm placing my hope in him, and I will follow Jesus. That's the greatest thing that could happen in this room today. And so while they're taking the Lord's Supper, you pray. You ask him to forgive you. You profess your faith in him. You surrender your life to him. And listen, you may be sitting in here, and you've been doing this for 20 years, playing a game, coming to church every week. You come because your spouse wants you to come. You're going through the motions, but you know in the deepest part of your soul you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And you say, I've taken this supper before. I may as well take it again. Don't. Don't. Do what matters most. Give your life to Christ. And we'll celebrate this meal again with you. Because if you don't do those things we just talked about, you'll be here and you'll take it unworthily. And I want you to make sure that you understand with me today the seriousness of not doing so. I can only put it the way the Bible puts it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to lessen it. I'm not going to try to dance around it to make it palatable. Paul literally says to these people, God loves you enough to not let you keep 
dishonoring the Lord's table. I want you to see what it says there. It says he disciplines them. Why? So that you don't come under the same judgment of the world. You better believe that sometimes, you know what, the Lord will take a believer home rather than just let them continue to dishonor him in the world and at his table. And what does it say? It says some became sick, some became weak. He says, and some have slept. They've died is what that means. Like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Two believers that lied to the church about what they had given. And Peter looked at him and said, why did you lie? You didn't have to give anything. No one made you give anything. You didn't have to give a thing. But if you're going to give, be honest about it. And they made it seem like they gave everything and they really had not. And remember, God set an example in the church right then. At the beginning of the life of this new church. Folks, it is serious what we're talking about today. Examine your hearts. As we go into the Lord's Supper today, I want to be clear on how we take the Lord's Supper here. Because we've got one cup with, actually we've got two cups that look like one cup. If you look at the bottom cup, it has the piece of bread at the bottom. And then you've got the juice that is on top of it. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we can do this as individuals. You can do this as a family. This first service, I took communion with Tony Hobbs this morning. And we sat and we prayed and we asked the Lord to search our hearts. We confessed our sin. We got right with the Lord. We made sure our hearts were pure towards others. And we prayed. Folks, don't feel like because the music starts, you have to come up here immediately. We're doing four songs for the purpose of you being able to get your heart right and examine yourself so you don't come and take this unworthily. Take the time. And if you want to lead out with your family, there's plenty of places to stand. There's four tables, two in front, two in back. Take the time to pray together, to pray by yourself before you take these elements. And we remember what Jesus said. He said, this is my body, right? Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it says he took the juice likewise after they had finished the meal. And he said, this is the new covenant written in my blood. Grace. Do this in remembrance of me. And take the bread when you're ready. Wherever you are in the room, take the bread when you're ready. When you've taken it and you're able to take it worthily. Take the bread and take the juice. And allow the Lord to speak into your heart and to your life today. Celebrate what Jesus has done for you. And if you're not a believer, I'm going to take communion. And as soon as I'm done, I'm going to be right back up here. We had several pray and rededicate their lives this morning. We had someone who came and gave their life to the Lord and wanted to be part of this family and be baptized into this family of believers as, as a believer. If that's you today, I'll be right up here. And I would love to share with you, talk with you, pray with you and let the church know about your decision. But this is a moment for you to get before the Lord. So as the musicians are coming, Father, we thank you so much 
Lord, for your word that challenges us, that, that, that speaks to our hearts, goes to the depths of our soul and reminds us of what you require. And Lord, I pray that as we come to this table today, we would come in a way that is worthy. Not that we are worthy, but Lord, that you've made us worthy. Lord, that we come here today having examined ourselves, being truthful and sincere about where we are spiritually, Lord, so that we can come and ask of you to continue this work in us, Lord, that we would not miss that, Lord, with you we have hope. Without you we have nothing. With you, everything is possible. Without you, nothing is possible. And so, Lord Jesus, we're simply remembering all that you accomplished on the cross and through your resurrection. And, Lord, may we be a changed people, a different people. I pray that we won't move towards these tables until we've evaluated ourselves. And, Lord, if there's someone here that needs to know you, give them the courage to pray where they are to receive Christ and more courage to come and say, Pastor Aaron, I'm a believer. I've prayed to receive Christ, and I want to let the church know, and I want to be baptized, and I want to be part of this church family. Lord, while everyone else is, is at the table, Lord, give them the courage to step out and to let the world know what they've done. So, Father, this moment, we thank you for the invitation. Lord, we thank you for your life that was given. And Lord, we pray that you would move in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.